Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. When I signed that book deal and I was a bit daunted about daunted and bewildered by a two-book deal, I thought it through deeply and I thought through the pressure and I thought through the gaze from other people. And sometimes it felt a little bit like everybody was talking to me about second novel syndrome. Like in my head, it felt like when I went to Woolies, the staff on the checkout were like, hi, how are you going? Good luck with your second novel. It just felt like it was everywhere. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today's episode is a little bit of a mashup, but it's going to mainly be a craft episode as I speak to a guest who's been with me on the Convo Couch twice before and will be joining me today for the third time. That guest is Holly Ringland, and today I'm going to be talking to Holly about crafting the second novel. Her new release, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, which I have literally just finished reading this morning. And if you're watching this on video and my eyes look a tad red, that is why, because Holly has once again tugged at my heartstrings, uh, just as she did with her first book, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. The last time I spoke to Holly, she was in the middle, I think, of writing Esther Wilding and going through that whole drafting process. So I wanted to chat to her now that the book is finished and out in the world. She's just completed a tour, a book tour, which of course we can do now that COVID is, has died out, died down a little bit. Um, and I just wanted to see how it was actually writing that second novel and actually getting it finished and putting it out in the world. So if you didn't catch that interview with Holly, you can find it in the Rights for Women backlist. And in fact, you can find an earlier chat with Holly also in the Rights for Women backlist, where I spoke to her particularly about The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. If you haven't caught either of those episodes or haven't caught up with what Holly is doing, let me tell you a little bit about her now. Holly Ringland is a writer, storyteller and television presenter. Her award-winning, best-selling debut novel, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, has been published in 31 countries or territories and will stream globally in 2023 as a seven-part series on Amazon Prime starring Sigourney Weaver. Holly grew up on Bundjalung Country in the southeast coast, Queensland coast of Australia. In May 2019, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart won the Australian Book Industry Award General Fiction Book of the Year. Not bad for a debut novel. In February 2020, Holly signed a two-book deal with HarperCollins Publishers Australia. Her second novel, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, has recently come out. And as I said, having just finished reading it, it's full of all the beautiful heart and joy and love that uh, Holly in, imbued into Alice Hart and also the grief and loss and trying to work out who we are and why we're here that was in Alice Hart. But I feel that in the writing of Esther Wilding, Holly's taken this 
to uh, a more nuanced, intriguing level. And that's what I want to ask her about as well. Throughout 2020, Holly had traveled through Australia to film Back to Nature, a visually stunning eight-episode series she co-hosted with Aaron Pedersen. It aired to critical acclaim on ABC TV in 2021, and you can catch all those episodes on ABC iView. Highly recommended viewing. The last time I spoke to Holly, she was actually sitting in her beautiful 1968 Olympic Riviera caravan that she'd named Frenchie. And I did make an off-the-cuff remark at the time, looking at her sitting there with the fairy lights around her and all these gorgeous plants and things, but oh, how great would it be to have a caravan to use as a podcast studio? I'm now sitting here in Virginia, and I have to say that is totally inspired by Holly Ringwand. So I'm really excited to talk to Holly about this book. It is primarily a craft of writing episode, but there will be a bit of a mashup of the heart of writing, of course, as always, when you talk to Holly and the whole business of writing and, and the writing life. So grab a cuppa and sit back and join Holly Ringland and I on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. I have oh. just finished this literally this morning, Holly. Oh, Pam. And I had to go and put the makeup on because, of course, I was crying. Oh, oh. oh thank you but for reading it. Oh, no, thank you for writing it. I really can't wait to talk to you about it. Here we go. I'm ready. And of course, Holly, I hope that you are looking at my background here. Where do you think I'm sitting? Oh my God, you're in Virginia. Yes. The caravan that I bought after we last spoke. Oh my God, how gorgeous. I was looking at you before and I was like, like something did tweak familiarity wise. I'm not in Frenchie, sadly. She needs a lot of TLC after a lot of rain. Yeah. So there's some, I've still got my plants in there and stuff, but there's some, I need the mole. It's oh, the no, that damn mole. Yeah, we've had but, it down here too. It's horrendous. So you look gorgeous in there. Yay. Thank you for the inspiration. It's been amazing. Mm. <laughs> what an honour. What an honour. <laughs> so Holly, you've just finished a massive book tour, going all over the place talking about Esther and the Seven Skins of Esther Wilding. How was that? You know, Pam, it was it was as bewildering as ever. I God, I think I've only been home for a week, and as I was saying to you just when we started chatting, it feels a little bit like finishing a long haul flight and finding your bearings again. Well, I haven't really had a lot of time in the jet laggy sort of state of my brain to process what just happened for three and a half weeks. Except that I have these moments of extreme humility and gratitude. I feel so humbled to my bone with these moments of clarity where I remember meeting booksellers on tour or looking at people's faces in the audience at events for Esther. And just, my gosh, people came out and showed up for me and came and sat with me and to talk about joy and grief and writing and and how we've all been doing for the last mm-hmm. three years because I wrote the novel through a pandemic and I think what's filtering through as I process it is just how grateful I am to have been able to tour at all after watching author friends and the incredible heartbreak of working so much on a novel and it coming out in 2020 and not yeah. being able to tour but just incredible gratitude that I could and that people 
responded and came to be with me at bookshops or events and talk about my novels and such a different experience to Lost Flowers, but also the same wonder. Different because I wasn't talking about specific trauma in my life every time I talked about it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Did you find it easier then in that sense? In that sense, definitely. I think I hadn't really realized the full extent to which doing the publicity for Lost Flowers was in one aspect, re-traumatizing myself every time I walked in front of a room of strangers to talk about where the book had come from, which as you and I have talked about before on Rights for Women, just to give context and not to be cryptic, is a background of trauma as a result of living for a lot of my life with male perpetrated violence. Mm. So that mm. was the story that Lost Flowers and Alice Nutt's story was born of, whereas Esther was very much born out of um, wanting to write about joy after Lost Flowers and figuring out very quickly in the first couple of pages that for me, if I am to write about joy, I also am to write about grief because they're two sides of the same coin. It was a beautiful in the main way being that I had this sort of grounded revelation that I had to write Alice Hart. That was the book that I had to write to cleanse my blood. And Esther Wilding has shown me who I am as a novelist. Writing Esther Wilding has shown me what my mind can do in a way when I'm not writing from a traumatized place, when I'm writing from a cleansed storytelling place and I felt that in tour I I felt that re response in people from tour so it was incredible and I think I'm it's probably going to take me a few more weeks of staring at the wall and <laughs> it just it's a great it's the pace of it as well like I was in a different city every couple of days sometimes and meeting beautiful booksellers multiple times a day and then doing an event that night it I kind of can't live in a global at once yeah so I actually just want to go back a bit I just actually got goosebumps when you talked about how writing this book showed you who you are really mm -hmm. as a writer and probably I imagine more even on a personal level because as I just mentioned when we first spoke I literally just finished reading the book this morning. And as you were speaking and talking about that, I pictured the last line of the oh, book, which of yeah. course I'm not going to give away to anyone. Um, oh, I just got goosebumps but, too. Yeah, on my face. yeah, very apt. I do want to say to everybody too that we have obviously spoken on Rights for Women twice before and the first yeah. time was about Alice Hart. Last year we spoke about Saying No to Fear, which was mm -hmm. an amazing chat that we had. And it, you were in the middle or in, in partway into writing the draft of Esther Wilding at that point. Mm. I do want to direct people back to those episodes. If you want to find out more about Alice Hart or, es or those early bits of it, writing Esther Wilding. And also I listened to your fantastic chat with Kate Mildenhall on the First Time Pod. And I know you've done a few other podcasts, so there's lots of stuff out there. But I really want to focus today with you, Holly, on talking about the actual writing of Esther Wilding and some of the craft things in there. Sure. And I just wanted to start with, because there had been so much success for you with 
Alice Hart. And I know that was quite unexpected for you. (laughs) (laughs) Understatement of the year, we say, with a twinkle of wisdom in our eyes. I love it. There's always lots of laughs when I chat to you, Holly. Um, So what was your mindset then when you actually sat down at the very beginning to write those first words of Esther Wilding, having that background of having come out of that huge success with Alice Hart? Yeah, I. it's such an important question. And I need to say again, off the back of your words about us talking before, it's such a delight, Pam, to talk about writing with you. So thank you so much for having me and doing the work that you do to support not only me, but all of the women that you give a voice to. Very honoured to be with yeah, you. Thank you. So thank you. The state for the, I think you might have heard, I don't know if this is a thing, but I have heard it called the second novel syndrome. Yes. That, have you heard it called that? I have, well? which is exactly right. why I, in my intro I mentioned that actually. Yes. And I think it's not, I think it's not specific, of course, to novel. It's the whole like, are you a one-trick pony, a one-hit wonder? It's across everything. It's the way that the world is made, I think, or at least it's a familiar thing about success that I think everybody can relate to, is that if you have had any level of success, what will happen after that? A quote, how will you follow that up? And as, and as we've talked about, when I wrote Alice Hart, I didn't know what I'd written. In terms of, I didn't know what I'd put from my body onto the page, my life onto the page. And so, in all honesty, as we have discussed before, my genuine hope with that novel is that just one publisher would think it wasn't shit. And then after, I can't even talk about it with a straight face, after multiple publishers expressed that they did not think it was shit and HarperCollins published The Lost Flowers, then I hoped that maybe one reader would feel connected to the novel and maybe share it with them and their dad and their aunties and everyone. And readers proved me disastrously wrong again with the force of their good heart, the love for the novel, which still makes me wobble and shake to talk about. All of which is to say that nothing can prepare anyone for when things happen like the book is adapted for a TV series and Sigourney Weaver signs on Just to play on your yeah. my And um, I still, there is, there's absolutely, I think then on some level, you get used to it in the sense that you can't sustain the constant bewilderment. So your brain has to normalize it somehow to be able to function and mm. hold that knowledge and to keep going. But there is... Who could ever believe that the Gorney Weaver is going to play someone? If anybody ever said that they got used to this, I would be like, really? If you could tell me how to get used to it, I'd be really interested in that. All of which is to say that I figured out long before the Gorney and made up story had optioned Lost Flowers. And even before Lost Flowers was published, I remember distinctly, it was in 2017, and I'd handed in one of the final edits of the draft of Lost Flowers to Catherine Mel, my beautiful publisher at Collins. And I remember distinctly the feeling of story starting to bubble in my mind mm-hmm. and asking me 
for attention, asking me to sit with thoughts and nouns that were coming into my mind. And that's the first simmer for me that my body recognizes of Dory asking for a home in my imagination. And at that point, specifically in my experience, there was a direct correlation between the trauma that I had lived with and obviously self-worth and then the knock-on from very low self-worth to self-belief. The two are entwined. But I knew enough in 2017 to know that when that sense of story of a new story started bubbling in me, I thought to myself, whatever happens with Alistair, whether everybody actually does think it's shit and it doesn't get published, or if it is published, and that is an unknown land for me that I can't even envision, no matter what happens with Alistair, will you let it stop you from writing again? And I remember that moment so clearly because for me to make a promise to myself and in an act of strength, with myself and to keep that promise was a muscle that was that I had, but it was underdeveloped from such corroded self-worth. Yeah. And I remember making that promise to myself. And it came from a place in my body where I thought, I know what it's like to feel my life trickling through my fingers in a sense. I know what it's like to not try because I'm scared of fail. I know what it's like to block off my stories right here at my throat and never speak them or write them. I've been there. I don't want to do that again. So very early on, I made this promise to myself before I even had really any sense of unfathomable as it was then, success or pressure. And over the five years that followed Pam, I didn't always succeed at keeping that promise to myself because I am an imperfect human, but I definitely use that moment of clarity and awareness as a way to not abandon myself mm. so that when it came time, when I signed the book deal with HarperCollins for my next two novels at the end of 2019, remember that, Pam, when we were all young and innocent, we had no idea what was coming. That's great, right. Great time to find a book deal. Yeah. I, when I signed that book deal and I was a bit daunted about daunted and bewildered by a two book deal I I thought it through deeply and I thought through the pressure and I thought through the gaze from other people and sometimes it felt a little bit like everybody was talking to me about second novel syndrome like in my head it felt like when I went to Woolies the staff on the checkout were like hi how are you going good luck with your second novel it just felt like it was everywhere but the amazing thing that I wouldn't have believed unless I experienced it was that making that promise to myself so early on and holding that as a centering place inside myself to have my own back, the thought all came, but keeping that promise to myself to not let anything to do with Alice Hart stop me from going back to what I love about stories and writing from that place is how I weathered pandemic the challenges of writing a novel in a pandemic and then the fear of offering something into the world for a second time. Fantastic. There's so many different elements in this story, Holly, from the fairy tale elements. There's the tattoo as, as art and, 
as a personal statement. There's so much about the sea and the Indigenous women who you bring into the story. There, there's so many different elements. And I just wanted to talk to you about, obviously, when we're writing and we start to form a story, there's lots of things bubbling away. And bringing all those things together can be quite the challenge. Mm-hmm. So when you think about all those different threads in the story and all the things that go into making up the narrative of Esther Wilding, I guess looking back on it now, have you got any clarity about how you managed to weave all that together or was it just a matter of <laughs> sitting down and pouring it out and just seeing what you had? It's, it's a confounding question, that one, isn't it? Because the strangest thing sometimes about writing is that you don't know how you've done it. You don't know. It feels like it comes to you in the same way that having a conversation is somewhat a subconscious thing. You and I aren't talking right now. I don't know what questions you're going to ask me. We haven't had any pre-planning for this beautiful convo. And uh, what we do have, though, is like a beautiful warmth and safety and trust together about the beautiful convos that we've had over the last few years. And I use this as as an example for how it feels sit down with a page a blank page like an interview can be very scary and daunting (laughs) and oh my god what am I going to say what am I going to write but then if you take a little bit of a pinch of faith and strength and trust with you to that space what comes out when you sit down to write and I always know where I'm writing to And that's something that I can talk about, like aside this, so that I don't get off track. But I, rather than knowing exactly what I'm writing, I always know where I'm writing to so that the page does not scare the wit out of me and give me so much anxiety that I can't function and I can't think and I can't write because self-doubt and fear are always waiting for any excuse to have a party and completely Mm. overthrow and overwhelm me. So when I was drawing together Esther's story and keeping in mind the promise I'd made to myself to not shut down any idea out of inner critic negativity, out of heart talk that was unnecessarily harsh, it was more like the more I sat with Esther and thought about her, and thought about her life, the more I came up with about what makes a life and what humanizes a story and what humanizes someone's inner world and their thoughts and dreams and the idiosyncrasies we have in our families. Like in Esther's life, she is the younger sister. Her beloved sister, Aura, is the oldest of the two of them. And their thing together in their youth, is that they ran around on the east coast of Lutruwitha, Tasmania, wild on the coast with seal and swan in the ocean and on the land. And the mythology that goes with both of those creatures was mirrored in Esther and Aura. So Esther was the black swan and Aura was the seal. And all of the stories and the fairy tales and the cultural references that went with both fed into their make-believe relationship with kids 
and then deep metaphoric references for their teenage years and adulthood. And I just, just using that one example that came to the page because I just thought about the way that we tell our own stories and define ourselves. And the biggest thing that I didn't do with myself, Pam, was say no. Right. So when an idea came to me about something I wanted to thread in, I didn't let my inner critic say that's a really shit idea because that's all the inner critic ever says. Like, I, yeah. that's all the inner critic has to say is what's wrong with you? Like, why would you think that's a good idea? At least in my experience. And mine. That, there we are. Yeah. That, that, they, can, <laughs> they can go off and have a party together. But there's this really interesting phrase that I've heard Ben Crow, who was Ash Barty's coach. Oh, yeah. And he's a writer and a speaker, and he talks about our inner fan. And that blew my mind, Pam. We've all got an inner critic, but what's our inner fan like? Mm, interesting. And if the inner critic has a degree of power, the inner fan also meets that degree of power at the opposite end of the spectrum. So, again, I didn't always succeed, but I just feared myself to the point of exhaustion and hoarseness inside to what that changed my imagination if it was useful and moved to the story forward or mirrored an emotional experience or a psychological state of any of the characters in the story I put it in and I promised myself I would keep doing that until the end of the story until I had a finished draft and then I would see what I had and the beautiful result of that is that I have a tapestry I have a tapestry of elements and themes in this book that make a life and make a world. And with the things like the Tasmanian Aboriginal women, the Palawa women, the Pakana women, and the shell stringing, the Kanalaraja in the story. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. That comes from learning about culture in that landscape and knowing that as a white writer of Scandinavian Celtic settlers and descendants in this country, I do not want to contribute another novel to Australian literature that's whitewashed. Mm. So that's where that element comes from, for example. It's just an important part and, again, is a humanised, interwoven part of the world of the story. Beautiful. You were talking, Holly, you mentioned about writing towards a certain point. As part of your process, do you know what, the next turning point is going to be or the next kind of major thing and then you basically make everything up until you get there? It's so interesting because I'm learning who I am as a novelist as I go. Like writing Lost Flowers, I have no idea how I did it. I wrote it completely alone. Nobody ever read any versions of the draft except for I think the first few chapters with a disastrous writing group but that's another story for another story. So I wrote the whole thing alone and had no idea how to, quote, Mm. write a novel. Whereas, and all I, to answer that, all I did was I just kept on turning up and blundering my way through it until I had a first draft that I could then go back Mm. and make sense of and shape. Yeah. And of course, we have an innate understanding of story that we bring to that as well. That's, that is what Lost Flowers taught me. I Mm. had no idea that I knew how to tell a story like across an expanse of time, world, character. And that was the biggest marvel about writing Lost Flowers 
was reflecting and going, how does my brain know how to do this? Sort of feeling, feeling blown away that where to end a chapter felt instinctive. Yeah. And that's not something that I knew about myself before I wrote the first draft, which was terrible, Pam. We all, like my first draft of Lost Flowers was hideous. I think I stopped counting edits at like 17 drafts. I was like, no, this is just going to go into the, there were many drafts. Yeah, innumerable. With Esther Wilding, I felt like the one thing that my inner critic, the one power my inner critic had lost was telling me that I couldn't do it because I'd written a novel before and that might not mean for sure that I could do it again, but I had written a story that long and cohesive before. So the inner critic couldn't take that knowledge away from me. And what I figured out was how triggering and how much anxiety fodder the blank page is. It, I think in any act of creativity, particularly if we come, particularly if we come from a place of it being something that we have experienced connected with grief, trauma, some sort of psychological wound, even if we think it's not a hugely dramatic experience that stifled our creativity, it's the easiest way to keep ourselves small is to not create because mm. by staying small and not creating, we're not at risk of feeling vulnerability in offering something to anybody, our community, our world, our friends. And the blank page as an example of the beginning of our creativity it just can be a horrendous thing to face up to because it's where we face ourselves so what I figured out with Esther was and I learned by experiencing this if I sat down and didn't know what I was at my desk and at the blank page to write that day I would just get indigestion and upset tummy constantly fighting panic and anxiety, mm. nausea, procrastination, discomfort, sort of anxiety, headache, like everything in my body was reacting to the threat of the blank page. It threatened me because it was a provocation for failure. It was a provocation for what are you even doing? There was It was like being alone in an empty field with thick wood around that field filled with things that could hurt me. That's what a blank page feels like to me. Yeah, so just going on from that a little bit more, Holly, did you feel that you learnt that whole idea about maybe structuring the story when you were doing the edits perhaps of Alice Hart and going through that more formal revision process? It was more like I think the thing about when I go to my blank page, now that we've talked about how horrendous I find the blank page. It was more that I learned through writing Esther that when I was going to sit down to write, I needed to know the directions of what I was writing. The main thing that I wanted to just try and say, thinking on my feet, is to just acknowledge how hard it is to show up at an empty word document. And that for me, showing up at an empty word document, if I don't know what I'm doing there, gives me all of the physical effects of panic and anxiety just and mounting, increasing until I'm physically unable to sit at the desk because it's just 
too hard to sit there asking myself to write and figure out what I'm doing there at the same time as I'm doing it. I figured out writing Esther that if I made bullet points about what I worked by chapters and if I made bullet points about what I wanted each chapter to contain, I was armed then and I was sure-footed when I went to the next blank page in the document. So if I knew, for example, in page in chapter one, no spoilers, but if I knew that I wanted to bring Esther home, something really big happens on her way home, that reunites her with somebody else in her life she hasn't seen for a long time, and then they make their way together to Esther's family home. Those are the points that I know about what I want to happen in the first chapter. And then the rest is me going with those points, armed with those directions, if you like, that I've made for myself. And then I write my way there. Yeah. And I make it up. I see it. I think about it. I see it. And I write what I see as I go. Mm. That's, and that's how once I got into the rhythm of that, and it was simple sometimes and sometimes it was really hard. And what, But once I got into the rhythm and seeing how that worked to manage my own mind, to manage anxiety, panic, self-doubt and fear, that became a very tried and true method for how to turn up to the desk. It was like doing the thinking slow, thinking through those directions I was writing for myself, the bullet points. And then once I had them and I could see where I wanted the chapter to go, I would go with it all in my head and write fast. But if I went to the page without those things thought through first, it was like, I'm in the field. I'm in the empty field and anybody could take me out at any time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. I think everybody develops their own process and that happens over time and numerous books can be different for each book too. But mm-hmm. say you're doing a little bit of a mix of plotting and then just allowing all the things that are in your head to bubbling away yes. to just appear on the page. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That was a really rewarding part of writing Mm. Esther was how the story taught me that about myself as a writer. Maybe it won't work for the next novel, but it really worked for this one for me. Yeah. Yeah. Gives you a plan going into the next one. An attempt. An attempt, yes. Yeah. What about, because the story is set around, set in in Lutruwitcha, Tasmania. Lutruwitcha, yep. That's right. But also then in Copenhagen in Denmark mm-hmm. and the Faroe Islands, but mm-hmm. you were unable to travel during the writing of the Wilding to obviously research those settings. Thanks, Pam. Let's go back there. Let's <laughs> Sorry to remind you of that. But I'm just really interested, and I think listeners might be interested too, about, you know, having read the book, the settings are so vivid, and I'm someone as a writer who really feels the need, as I'm sure you are normally, to go to a place and experience it in order to be able to then recreate it on the page. So mm-hmm. how did you go about that challenge of having to create these amazing settings and to really put yourself and to put your characters into those places when you couldn't actually go there? It was one of the hardest things about writing a novel, Pam. I Something I really believed to be the truest of true things about myself as a human and a writer was that I couldn't ever write a landscape if I hadn't had my feet walk lightly on it firsthand, if I hadn't been able to sniff it and 
feel the air on my skin and listen to country and feel country talking back to me through birdsong or wind or crashing waves. It's all lack thereof. And the biggest, as 2020 unfolded, and in that emotional and psychological climate we were all living in with so much collective stress, unknown, uncertainty, fear, loss and grief that we were absorbing in our personal lives and as a collective every day. On top of that, I, for me, part of my work, because I was so lucky to have work through the pandemic, was that I'd find I was legally obligated to create something. There was nothing in the contract, in my contract that was like, like the world shuts down. That's fine. You just have, you just take a year off. That's fine. And I was so affected by it as we all were. My creativity was affected by it because as we talked about before, any excuse, any tidbit for self-doubt and fear to cling on to is we can't do this. What do you, you really think you're going to write a place you haven't been to? That's not who you are. So I, I talked to Catherine, my publisher at HarperCollins. I rang her. And I said, Catherine, I need to talk to you about something. I think I need to put Esther aside. I had research trips to Copenhagen and the Faroes, month-long book for the middle of 2020. Bless. I thought that it might all blow over in a week and we'd be on the way again. I had to obviously cancel those. And I was just sitting in the ruins of this best laid plan that I had for the research to write this book. And I rang Catherine and I said, I think I need to maybe put Esther to the side. I think maybe I need to pitch you another novel that will feel more feasible for me to write through this climate, through this time and experience in the world. I said, I can't write somewhere that I haven't been, Catherine. It's not who I am. I'm not able. I'm not capable. I can't do it. And Ham, she made all the right noises. Yes. No, this is very hard. Yes, this is very painful. No, I hear you. No, I totally hear you. And she was like, how about sleep on it? We'll talk about it the next few days. And this is the power of what belief in a writer gives them. The next day, I got a text from Catherine and she hadn't written anything. It was just like a link. And the link title said, Amy Tan, bestselling author of Joy Luck Club talks about how she wrote about time and place that she'd never been to. <laughs> Catherine just dropped this link at me and she, and I started to laugh and she did that a couple of times over with other gargantuan authors in the world who had talked about writing from what they know but mostly could imagine. And the effect of Catherine's belief in me and her encouragement of me to try and do this thing, I gave me the grit to pull up my bootstrap, as it were, and think, okay, I am in such a lucky position right now that, again, I have work to do. Writing is my job right now. I need to try and do a thing I think I can't do so that I know that I have tried and put in the work. And Pam, Hats off to the Bronte sisters because how in the hell they wrote anything without the internet, I don't know. But the internet saved me because it wasn't just going down Wikipedia rabbit hole. I was able to connect with artists and writers in the Faroe Island. I wrote to them 
like total cold fall, like I was a kid looking for a pen pal. And I was like, hi, you don't know me. I'm from Australia. I don't want to sound unhinged, but this is what I'm trying to do. And would you be interested at all in helping me? And I put a call out on social media to ask anybody if they knew any facts about specific things about the Faroe Islands. And I had scientists and photographers and artists respond. And that was so beautiful. And then Pam, the people that really saved me, and I consider myself, when I'm about to say God bless the geeks, I consider myself one of that legion because these people who video their trips, their car trips, to drive to a ferry in the Faroe Islands and then catch the ferry and document everything on the journey of the ferry right down to we have parked by the blue railing at the northwest. I'm like, Esther, get on the ferry. It's got a blue railing. Oh, brilliant. And and the plane addicts, the passionate plane lovers that are like, come with me today as I fly from Copenhagen to Korshav in the Faroe Islands. Here, here is what I got served on the flight that lasts for two hours and 10 minutes. Oh my God, that's I'm amazing. like madly. So all of these beautiful geeks on the internet who, thanks plane guy 73, who like uploads his videos <laughs> of his plane trips because they gave me a visual sense of things that Esther did. And it's down to, like I fictionalized a lot of venues that Esther visits in the capital, Torshavn in Faroe Island, I fictionalized them so that I had a bit more freedom. Yeah. But so many venues in the Faroes were inspired by real places. Like Sophus and Flossie's bar, Florvin, is inspired by a real bar in the capital city that have got all these beautiful videos about the launch of the bar and what the inside looked like and the swim that everybody took and they jumped into the icy sea and then drank beer and those sorts of evocative vibes, I guess, that you can get by watching all of these things, this plethora mm. of information on the internet. I just gathered as much as I possibly could. And then with both Latruissa in Tasmania and the Faroe Islands, I had sensitivity readers, which for anybody who doesn't know, mm. is when a, if a writer is writing outside of their own culture, they can work with people from that culture who are generally called sensitivity readers in this context, who will read the work and advise the writer on whether or not their representation of the culture is accurate or appropriate. So I had sensitivity readers in Latruita, as I said, and the Pharaohs, and they were wonderful women that gave me such a rewarding experience writing this book. And luckily I had been, I was in Farrah, no, Copenhagen. I did get to Copenhagen in 2014 for a long weekend. Okay, great. And so I had three days of walking around that beautiful city and God bless Google Street View, Pam. God bless Google Street View. Catherine looks at me with a very wide glint in her eye because what an incredible thing to be proven wrong about something you think you know for sure about yourself. Yeah, definitely. And as I said, Holly, reading it, I felt like I was in those places and you managed to, whether it's completely accurate or not, it doesn't really matter because it is fiction as well, but you're putting the reader definitely into Esther's skin and into that space and place. Oh, I it, couldn't it wish worked. for more, Tam. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much. 
I also wanted to ask you, Holly, a couple of things on the craft level. I just want to go back a bit. We're talking about structure and very Mm. early into my reading of the book, there is a kind of writing mantra, which many writers will know, which is make things worse. And very early into my reading of the book, I thought, ah, Holly's really nailed this. (laughs) Poor Esther, she's really making things worse. So I really felt that as the story continued to unfold. And the other thing is this issue of backstory that so many of us get our knickers in a twist about. But of course, revealing the backstory is how we learn about the character and how the character is also learning about herself as she goes back and remembers different parts of her life. And I love the way you did a couple of things with the backstory. There were little moments where just there'd be just a tiny snippet, a sentence or two sentences of a memory that Esther would have, which gave the reader a little bit of that backstory. But then you've got these other sort of longer sections, usually around maybe half a page to a page or so. And in inserting that backstory, you actually changed tense, which I found Mm. really interesting. And so most of the narrative that we're following along with Esther is in past tense. And then there's these moments where she actually goes into the memory and it shifts quite quickly into just this present tense. And the first couple of times I thought, oh, what's happening? And then of course, Mm. as you get used to that, you think, oh, okay, we're in a memory now. So I'm really curious to find out Did that happen automatically in the writing for you as you were writing those memories or was it something that you massaged and played around with as the book came out? So I think two things. Beautiful question, Pan. Thank you. I think two things. My experience of being alive is that keeping the past in the past is conscious work I have to do mentally because my experience of being alive and human is that memories are here right in front of me all the time, inserting themselves into my present day all the time. Whether it's really impactful, whether they are poignant or grieving or joyous memories, that's the next step down the path of managing the past flickering back at me all the time. But my experience of having a brain is that memory is constant and it present and even if I'm at peace in the present moment when the mind runs and we process some unfathomable number of thoughts and flickers and visions I had I can't even I'm not even going to try and be like oh it's 63,000 because I don't know but I have I have we've read things before about the incalculable number of of thoughts and things that our brain is processing and holding at all times so What felt natural to me writing Esther's consciousness and life, especially grieving an older sister Mm. and the ambiguous loss and lack of closure of her sister's disappearance is how present path would be for her in every waking moment and sleeping moment when she's in dreams. So especially I think with my experience and understanding of trauma, there is a thing our brain does called intrusive thought where there is an, there is completely unplanned that a brain that is wounded or traumatized is constantly trying to process something that is unprocessable really. I'm making up words here, Pam. I love that word. Great word. Great. And so that's how rather than feeling in a 
clinical way with myself, I'm going to insert backstory now. It was like the more I stayed with Esther and wrote her through a scene, I just wrote what felt natural about if she was, because we don't verbalize when it happens. At least I don't verbalize when the past is always. No, we don't. You don't verbalize it to the world, but you're, it's happening to you. And that felt quite instinctual to me, writing Esther was in any given moment, there was a double life happening inside of her where she was remembering something about her life with her sister because that is how she grew up. It was the way her world was made. So that, it just felt so instinctual rather than prescriptive when those parts of backstory would come into any narrative moment. And then the second part to that in changing the tense was something that came out of an incredible conversation that I had with Catherine, my publisher, when we were talking about this very thing and I was saying to Catherine the memories Esther's past and present one and the same her past is actually present her present is present and her past is present because she hasn't grieved but she is living in the displacement caused by grief and so the brain is constantly looping and trying to find a way to process the unfathomable, the loss of her sister. And it was in that discussion with Catherine that we talked about trying present tense with the memories because Esther is experiencing them as the now. Yes. Yeah. And I've never done that before in writing. It was another beautiful sort of limb-stretching part of writing this book was I'd never done that before where I had written reflections or intrusive thoughts or memories in the present tense. And it took me a couple of goes, just like you reading it, to feel like, it's right. How does this? But then the minute you sink into it, I think there's something quite natural about how present tense memory feels because when we either willingly go into memory in our minds or it's playing out in a trauma loop like a movie that won't stop, it's always active. It's not passive. Yeah. Yeah. That's my experience anyway. Like I can, I'm speaking only for myself. And so that was the inspiration from how, for how I wrote Esther's experience of carrying the past and the present and grief she can't look at and joy she can't commit herself. Highly not autobiographical, Pam. I drew on nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we're always drawing on something aren't we it doesn't it, no matter how much we think we're not or always. it's always there absolutely that's really interesting to me as a sort of technique and the other thing that I was really interested in was sort of interspersion and quite random but every now and then there'll be a chapter from the point of view of one of the other kind of supporting cast members if you like so whether it's um, Esther's father or her mother Freya, and thank you for that because my daughter's Freya, by the way. I love that. Oh, how beautiful. <laughs> yeah, my youngest daughter's name's Freya. I have a huge thought. I love Freya. I it's a, a gorgeous name, isn't it? it? And then there's Erin, her aunt. And so we get, and some of the other characters too, have just one chapter where we're mm. in their point of view. Was that something that happened quite naturally for you as well in the writing? Yeah. I felt like when Esther leaves, Lutruita, Tasmania, and she went to Copenhagen. It just felt so natural to me that the gaze 
that my writerly gaze turned back and looked at who she left behind and who was supporting her and how the story of the loss of Aura didn't, obviously it didn't just affect Esther and how Esther's demolition of her own life and her willingness to find her own courage and joy, how one person making that choice can influence other people's lives. So in the novel, the chapters stay with Esther right up until she leaves Latruitha and goes to Denmark. Yep. Once she's on her way and she's left home, that's where we get chapters of perspective from other from the other pillars in her life that make up the story. And it just felt so it, it just felt like it was so natural and the only way to tell the story was to take a different lens of what was happening in the same time for different people. As I said, just to explore how connected we all are by familial ties, even if it's family we choose, not blood, and how one person's transformation gives us all permission to look at our own potential ways to transform ourselves. So that was the natural motivation to go and tell story from other people in Esther and Aura's lives who hold parts of our stories. Because I've said this a few times on two of you scratch the surface of any of us and we are made of stories and our stories are not islands. There are pieces of us held by countless people in our lives. And that was the natural instinct in telling Esther's story was to give page time to the people who love her and care for her and were angered by some of her choices and who were also suffering the perils of being guided through life by shame and vulnerability and fear. And the other thing I really love too, Holly, and I found this, I'm sure that we've all found this as we travel through life and particularly when traveling, and this is a point that is picked up, that some of the most illuminating moments that Esther has. Beautiful. Uh, she's speaking to complete strangers. Yeah. And it really struck me as, because I noticed it a couple of times, I thought, this, yeah, this is happening. So each time she'd reveal more of herself to another stranger or, or somebody she's just met and then there was, they'd have this conversation and she'd come away feeling that little bit more, she'd have that little bit more understanding of herself and of things that had happened to her. And I thought, how true that is that often it's oh, thank you. the people that we don't know who we're best able to talk to and to share some of those really secret, intimate parts of ourselves because, of mm. course, we haven't got that background with them and we haven't got that sense that we could be judged or that we could be hurting yes. them in any way. So I really love the way you use those little just incidental oh, characters to, to reveal that. Yeah, I had a lot of... It was a joy reflecting on those moments in my life when I've been lucky enough and had the privilege to be able to travel. And some of the most stellar moments in my life have been shared with people I've never spoken to again outside of those moments that we shared that are so unique and precious unto themselves. And I know from my own experience of traveling 
when I was younger and alone that I was able to practice telling stories of my own that I'd never verbalized before in the safety of connection that you can only make with a stranger. Yeah. Because it's the connection and the possibility of that connection with a stranger that for me at least seems to elicit that ability to be a true part of yourself that you maybe can't be anywhere else in your life because there are too many hang-ups or hazards or interrelationship prickles or hurt or guilt, shame, vulnerability. I'm not simple creatures, are we? And those moments that I've had, particularly in hostels or on aeroplanes, so I love being able to be with Esther and give her those moments and watch her choosing joy and choosing verbalizing truth and choosing to be vulnerable and to tell her story because that's what she's wanted to do all along. And the kindness yeah. of strangers, like you spend one night making friends with someone who buys you a meal because you don't have enough money to have a sandwich. And that's the sort of stuff that you'll remember all your life. So it was a real thrill to give Esther those moments and in the story as a way to show the reader and for the reader to feel too about how we were turning towards joy. Mm -hmm. And because right from page, right from chapter one, the absurdity of joy when joy shows up in our hardest moments, it doesn't mean we can always see that it's there, but it is still present, even in its absurdity. Like the first chapter of Esther's story, where she's deeply grieving and a total mess, and she's making all the wrong choices and constantly blowing her life up because she thinks that if she ignores what sort of burdens her, life will somehow get better. But then she finds herself in a situation where she's confronted by someone that she loves in her family dressed head to toe with peanut burner. Yes. And the absurdity of that moment and the dark humour of that moment, but she can't see it. So the reader, I hope the reader might be able to see it. Yeah. My hope is that the reader can see it, but Esther can't see it. And then slowly through her interactions with the world, and her reluctance, overcoming her reluctance to go outside of herself and therefore into the world, she starts to notice the joy because yeah. there's something that the poet Ross Gay talks about that is always in my mind, which is that as adults, joy is not always holding hands and skipping under a rainbow and feeling ecstatic, though God it's good when that's what it is. But he calls it grown joy. And grown joy can be the connection of our sorrows, the connecting and being seen by another person when you say, this is where it hurts and this is what I can't bear to show the world. And those moments with strangers are grown joy to me. Yeah, yeah I really like that, grown joy. It's good. Yeah. yeah. Holly, I'm conscious of taking up too much of your time. You have been, as always, we could chat all day. But I <laughs> 
Just wanted to ask you a couple more things. One is about music plays an enormous part in this story, right from the opening. There's that fabulous yeah. 80s party and so many songs referenced and it happens at various times. And I was really excited to see and the authors noted the fact that there are Spotify playlists that we They're all there. can go and listen to. So how the characters obviously and the story that the music's in there how does music influence you and your moods and maybe particularly when you're writing or how does music inspire you, I guess, is what I'm asking. I never write without music, Pam. I can't write with lyrical music. I can't have music that has lyrics in it because as a word lover, I get too caught up in the story yeah, that the song too. is telling. Yeah. So I am constantly gathering, collecting and listening to music that evokes I guess what you would call a bittersweet feeling. It sets my brain into storytelling mode. And thing that I was reflecting on when I was writing Esther was I talked before about scratching the surface of us and we're made of stories. One of our story keepers, there's so many of her, a song keeps our time, place and the person we were with, all without. And the power of that was something I didn't consciously realize I was going to write so vividly through this book, but it's something that has such a huge effect on me. And I think particularly as a child of the 80s as well, being able to, something that is talked in the book a lot in direct and indirect ways is the concept of time. Mm. And whether his dad talks to her a lot about time in, in, in astronomy, in the stars, that the light of stars is not present, it's traveling from the past. And so there are a lot of rituals and ceremonies and actions in the novel that explore people's relationship with time and memory. The music in the book is one of the time machines. Yeah. And I used it a lot to explore the pain of nostalgia because nostalgia is wishing for something that was, but was it ever really as we remember it to be, as we are nostalgic for? Was the reality what we pine for and crave as nostalgia would have us feel? So the 80s music, the playlist, they are all key to doors and memories of life for all of the characters. And they are also the way that Esther not only feels her past gathering closely, but it's also music is also the invitation to her to step outside of the past and into a new playlist for her life, if you like. Mm. And that comes from a playlist that is made for her, no spoilers. And that's right. That's right. And another another playlist for a read like a circle back eighties moment towards the end of her story. And one song in particular that by the water boy called This Is oh, the yeah. Sea that allows her to consider herself as her own person, her own living memory maker, rather than constantly being in the shadow of loss of her sister and of her sister's life. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Amazing Thank power. You. 
behind Thank music. You. I don't know if you've seen that C series Take Five. No. Oh, you have to watch it. So it's Sam oh my god, Rowe. I'm making a note. Oh my yeah. god. Um Zan Rowe from Triple J. And yes. she talks to different they're not all musicians. Missy Higgins, the Missy Higgins one was amazing. Yeah. Um, there's Guy Pierce, uh Keith Urban, there's a few. So basically amazing. they choose five songs, not their save five favorite songs, but five songs that take them back to a particular time in their life. And she oh plays the God. the track and then talks to them about it. And like the emotion and it's really great. You love oh my it. god, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna do that for my rest period today. Okay. My tour my tour recovery. Man, <laughs> totally. Because I, I haven't had a life. So I've been holding shown and books right and I, haven't, I haven't read and seen. <laughs> had it to my list. Thank you. But that's what you're how you're describing that show is exactly what motivated me. They're just time machines, aren't they? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. Just lastly, Holly. You mentioned the word transformation a number yeah. of times. And interestingly, I listened back to our last chat and I asked you at the end of that chat. I remember. What was at the heart of your writing? And yeah. the word you used then was transformation. Yeah. So I'd like to know if you can articulate it. I mean, and you've touched on it at various points during our chat, but how has writing Esther Wilding transformed you? Pam, you ask the best question. Constantly fighting back like the choke of the blub. No one has asked me that, Pam, which is no I'm putting you on the thing. spot. Sorry. No, no, not at all. It, it's an incredible question to be asked. And I think truthfully, and I'll just follow my gut to answer it, I think truthfully it comes back to what I said at the beginning. Writing Alice Hart was telling the story that had been in my body for years that was making me emotionally sick the longer I didn't write it because I wanted to be a writer since I was three and I constantly denied myself that as an adult because of many reasons, post-traumatic stress, fear of failure, fear of that blank page. And writing Alice, as I said, cleansed my blood. It was like, medicine but I didn't know that it was medicine to clean my blood until now people used to ask me on tour with lost flowers was it cathartic was it therapy are you healed now and at the time I was like no it was really hard and made me shake with fear and trauma and joy and wonder and I don't feel like no I don't really feel better but <laughs> having done it but what I did feel was that I had taken ownership of the story that had previously owned me for years so I think that's the truest thing I can tell you is that Alice cleaned my blood and writing Esther is me meeting myself as a writer in a way that I never have known myself to be before here's the great trick about writing you set out to write about joy and grief and a woman accepting both as a way of transforming herself and the power of stories is that I can't be in there writing that book without that happening mm. to, to me and facing it's the facing down shame and fear of feeling grief which 
also allows her to feel joy. If you numb yourself to one, you numb yourself to the other. It was a lesson in writing this second novel. It was a constant lesson to myself of, Holly, are you writing from what you love? Are you writing from a place of what you love? Because if you are writing from that place, there is nothing truer that you can be doing or giving to the page. And that is how the story has a heartbeat. But the cyclic payoff is that's how I have a heartbeat and transformation too. And I, there's a freedom that I have that writing this book has given me didn't have in my relationship with myself before I wrote it. You got me, Pam. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry, actually. I took it back. It's a be- beautiful <laughs> question. And a beautiful answer. Thank you. Yeah. Very much. Thank and you. And I think a really nice place for us to finish, Holly. Because I really appreciate your time. And oh, likewise. I hope that you do get some time out to chill and just refill your well and do some yeah. things that you love. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that time. I'm it's that's the other thing, learning how to rest and mm. be soft with yourself. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Holly. It's been Thank an absolute you. joy again to talk to you. Thank and you. I do hope that we get to see each other face to face at some point. Oh, we will. I know we will. It'll be at, it'll probably be at a writers festival yeah. or and they'll be screeching across the room and it will be glorious. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. You're amazing. Oh, Pam, you're amazing. It's been fantastic. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>